According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4 is our passage today as we get started. Philippians chapter 4. We've had a couple of classes now in this fourth chapter already, so we're ready to, uh, to proceed and gain some new ground there. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And we have a very tender address here as he begins his conclusion. The most tender address, the tenderest address that he gives to any congregation. I think if he, uh, if you put a gun to Paul's head and say, tell me your favorite church, it would be Philippi. That it would be uh, this where they had such like-mindedness and they had such joy and, uh, and ministry together. So he calls them beloved a couple of times. He calls them the joy and crown kindred, J-A-C-K, joy and crown kindred. And so we've learned a new acronym and uh, we're going to be making good use of that, I think, in the, uh, in the classes ahead. All right, before we do start though, remember God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment of silent prayer that we might prepare our priesthood for the ministry of the word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the grace provision that allows truth to be taught. And Father, we have a lampstand with the uh, the doors are still open, the lights are still on, the bills are still paid, and, and here we are, Father. So thank you for your faithfulness. And we call upon that faithfulness this hour now as the Word of God goes forth, that the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit would be active, uh, functioning within each believer priest, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, taking this chapter and really breaking it down into four parts, uh, we've introduced this a couple of times, and I don't know that I'll do this again, but at least for this morning, you can see uh, three parts, actually, that we're going to break it down to, verses 1 through 9, verses 10 through 19, and then verses 20 through uh, 23. And when we, when we create the segments like this within the text itself, what we, effectively what we do then is just create separate outlines so that uh, we can kind of uh, simplify things uh, working our way through a, a particular chapter. So verses 1 through 4, uh, chapter 4 begins with practical applications that rapture reflection should prompt in the life of every church member. Remember, the rapture doctrine came at the end of chapter 3, and it's important that we know rapture doctrine. But more important than knowing it is actually using it, is actually allowing rapture doctrine to impact our perspective so that we reflect upon it, that we dwell upon it, that we live our lives under the imminent daily anticipation of being face-to-face with Jesus Christ. So rapture reflection should prompt a diligence in, uh, in all that we do. And so that's presently where we are, and we'll pick up here in a moment. When we finish this section, then we're going to move on to verses 10 through 19, and it's almost a side trip. It's almost uh, uh, something that he mentions in passing. He, uh, He does want to give a particular thanksgiving to the Philippian saints for the money that they sent. They had sent a a grace gift to him, and Epaphroditus was the agent that had brought it. And so we've got grace provision that we're going to see in verses 10 through 19. And I think apart from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 or 9, uh, this is is really one of the greatest texts we have anywhere in the New Testament as it applies to grace giving, because it shows it in its priesthood context, and it shows it in, uh, as you'll notice, as a sweet-smelling savor. 
with some of the language that happens here. And it talks about the profit that increases to the giver's account. Unlike secular funds, when if, uh, you know, if I give you 20 bucks out of my pocket, then you've profited and I've diminished. Not so as under the Lord. The one who gives is the one who profits under the grace principles of giving in the church age. And so that will come out in, uh, in the second section. And then finally, uh, really a short conclusion, one of the shortest ones ever in a Pauline epistle, uh, verses 20 through 23 uh, as a closing and a doxology. So that's what we're going to handle there. For this morning, though, we're still in this first part, rapture, reflections, and response. And we're learning about uh, what it means to, uh, to stay steadfast as the imperative is, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And the order that we have to stand firm is one we've seen in other book studies. And so uh, when we see it again here in this study, we'll be able to review uh, things that we already should be familiar with. But we start with the uh, terms of uh, tenderness, and it is the tenderest address and uh, we, I'm not going to repeat what we've done in past lessons. If you, if you want to get it, uh, they're just sitting there. Those MP3 files are just sitting there on the website, and you've got a chance to, uh, to download them at your leisure. But we have really twin expressions, and, and two of them, because we have uh, beloved and longed for. Beloved and longed for. And that's, a, that's an aspect that I think we can improve upon the New American Standard translation here in verse 1, where it says, My beloved brethren whom I long to see... And that really separates out the whom I long to see as a separate clause, as a, as a relative phrase that follows my beloved brethren. And that's not right. Uh, the actual Greek text has beloved and longed for in a, as a tandem, and uh, we should keep it as a tandem as it relates to the term brethren. So my beloved and longed for brethren is the expression there. And then he calls them my joy and crown my joy and crown. And so that's why in, uh, in the subpoints of this, I introduced you with the acronym Joy and Crown Kindred. And we're going to use this a lot. We're going to use this Joy and Crown Kindred because that's what we are. Uh, that's what this flock is, one to another. We are Joy and Crown Kindred, one to another, because we are the, the believers. Of course, there's believers all over the planet, but the believers here, the Christians here in this flock, are the ones that, that pray for one another and love one another and serve one another and, and uh, bear one another's burdens. We are the flock that fights the battle together. And so it's like uh, soldiers in a foxhole. Uh, you, you develop a real esprit de corps. You, do, you develop a real camaraderie in the angelic conflict because we go through the slings and the arrows together. And so uh, all of the, the tenderness and all the terminology that Paul is applying here to the Philippian saints, uh, we should be applying equally one to another, which means uh, maybe we'll start calling each other Jack <laughs> or uh, something along those lines so that we know that we are joy and crown kindred uh, one to another. And, uh, and different things there. Now we went through some subpoints on that, and uh, I'm going to let that go for this morning because I want to move on to main point two then. The therefore and the in this way. Therefore and the in this way. We want to be clear, these are linked. Uh, therefore, in this way are linked together. And so the same logic, the same considerations that drive one have to drive them both. So on the basis of rapture doctrine, uh, eagerly awaiting as joy and crown kindred, we want to stand firm. All right? Therefore, in this way, on the basis of rapture doctrine... That's what supplies the, uh, the, uh, the therefore. And then the in this way. In what way? How? How do I walk? 
right? It's kind of like the, you know, it's corny, but the old uh, jokes about, you know, walk this way, and then you, you copycat the guy and how he's walking, right? In, uh, in uh, you know, a Mel Brooks movie or some other kind of a corny uh, comedy movie of that nature. And, uh, okay, I remember what movie it is now, and I think I'm okay. <laughs> Sometimes I, I illustrate with a movie on a Sunday morning, and they say, Pastor, do you really watch that, those kind of movies? No, I think I'm, I'm good. All right, Young Frankenstein is the one I'm thinking of, and very hilarious in any event. So walk this way. Well, walk, walk what way? How do I walk? As joy and crown kindred that are fixed on rapture doctrine, that are living day by day in anticipation of the Lord's return, so we're serving one another. On that basis, stand fast. And uh, that's what we're dealing with here, all right? So reflecting on rapture doctrine should create an attitudinal response, an attitudinal response. That is the blessed hope of an imminent departure which goads us to stay rapture ready. That's the attitudinal response. We should have that sense of eagerness, that sense of can't wait. And uh, and I th- hopefully we have that here where we try to close every service with here, there, or in the air. We try to remind one another that we may not be back on Wednesday because a trumpet could sound and we may not be back at the next opportunity because this could be our final opportunity. And that's, uh, that's a hallmark. And we want to keep that a hallmark because there's a crown associated with loving His appearing. One of the easiest crowns you can get as a church-age believer priest is that crown that is given to all who have loved His appearing. And so, staying rapture ready. And if you want to take these verses down, we looked at them on Wednesday. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, 2 Timothy 4, 8, and Titus 2, 13. The Titus passage is the one that mentions the, um, the, the term blessed hope that uh, we often use just as a synonym for the rapture itself. Now, in all these senses of imminence, um, one thing I want to clear up this morning is something that lends itself to some confusion. So uh, I'm going to unconfuse things here today. Other dispensations had similar eschatological goads. Other dispensations have had similar eschatological goads. In other words, the doctrine of imminency is not limited to the rapture. And so as we see them, we, we observe things that are analogous In other words, it's an analogy. We can learn from it, but we only learn from it in the analogous way that it's presented. We don't confuse those issues. We want to be clear. So other dispensations have had similar eschatological goads analogous to the church's application of imminency. All right? I'm going to show you some of these and and also explain why it is that many churches or pastors or theologians will end up conflating passages because of those similarities. And I think we're blessed to observe the similarities, but then we're also uh, not blessed if we fail to observe the differences. And so we don't allow, because the differences don't allow us to conflate the issues, uh, we can still address the similarities just fine by accepting it as a principle, by accepting it as, a, as an imminency concept, but not relating them uh, or identifying them together. So does that make sense? Let me, let me explain. So the idea of imminency means any moment means it could be now. It could be before the end of this hour, right? Or it could be before the end of this illustration. It could be any time, at any moment. Or it could be 10,000 years from now. We don't know. But at any moment, it could happen. That's imminency. And that's the expectation we're under. 
That, the rapture of the church. That's the imminency application for the church is the rapture. When the trumpet sounds and we're caught up to meet the Lord in the, in the air. Now, what about the days of Noah? All right, what about other venues? Because the days of Noah was an imminent judgment. And in the days of Noah, he was preaching uh, repentance and he was preaching righteousness. He were, we're told he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. And yet it was an imminent judgment that it was gonna, he was going to destroy the world with, with water. And when's that going to start? It was kept imminent until the day that God said, all right, get into the ark. And I believe that this, uh, the death of Melchizedek was a sign of that too, by the way. He died the very year of the flood. And uh, as far as that goes, uh, the death of Melchizedek then was the, was the indicator that it's now more imminent, <laughs> right? It, imminently imminent. Uh, I'm sorry? Oh, Methuselah. Am I saying Melchizedek? Thank you. Methuselah. All right. Methuselah, not Melchizedek. Thank you. In any event. So he lives 969 years. He's the oldest guy in the Bible. And the year he dies is the year of the flood. See? And so that was the, the, uh, the concept, the belief that when Methuselah died, that that judgment became imminent. All right. Thank you for that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Next hour is Melchizedek doctrine in the book of Hebrews. All right. Other concepts of imminency. You know, in the tribulation, when Israel is trying to survive the tribulation and Antichrist is ruling this earth and uh, he's giving out the mark of the beast to buy and to sell and all these other things are happening and there's, uh, there's global persecution that's attacking the saints, there is an imminent expectation for the return of Christ there also. And uh, Jesus says he's going to come as a thief and you don't know the day or the hour. And so you have to stay on the alert. And there is an imminency there. And Jesus would teach parables there. So join me in Matthew 24 and uh, we'll take a look at this. And we'll ask ourselves if, uh, if we have to equate this with the rapture event, is it necessary for it to be the same thing as the rapture event? Or could it be two separate events that both employ the principle of imminency? And, and, and that's what we conclude, of course, and, and uh, we should see that pretty clearly. So in Matthew 24, chapter 24 and 25, we're talking about the Mount Olivet Discourse that Jesus is delivering shortly before his crucifixion. And it's really the last of his great public discourses. The upper room discourse will be a private discourse with his disciples. But on Mount Olivet, he gives the last of his great public discourses. And it's, all, it's about eschatology. It's about the doctrine of end times, the last things. And uh, the disciples want to know these things. So um, the key verses are 42 through 44, but just so you see the, the aspect of the chapter here, it starts with uh, pointing out the things of the temple. Jesus came out from the temple as he was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And they're all impressed. Herod had spent all those years and all kinds of money uh, remodeling the temple for the Jewish people, and they were impressed. It was an impressive structure. But he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So uh, they're all impressed with it. And he says it's slated for destruction. (coughs) And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so there's three questions that are answered here or that are asked. Two of them get answered in this chapter, and the third one you've got to go to the 
Gospel of Luke and get the information there. In any event, what follows then, all these red letters in chapter 24 and 25 is a discourse on the end times. It's a discourse on the coming tribulation and the uh, second advent and uh, the, uh, the coming kingdom. And so, as you can just skim through, we don't have to read the whole chapter here, but many false Christs will be coming. There will be wars and rumors of wars, uh, <clears throat> all the things that we see here. You get down to the perilous times. Notice the gospel of the kingdom. Let's see, I don't want to miss... Let's see here. So, uh, wars and rumors of wars in verse 6, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom in verse 7. These are the beginning of birth pangs. That's all it is. The beginning of birth pangs. Those are those false labor pangs, those Braxton Hicks things that, that if it's your first baby you think, oh, this is it, and then you realize later, no, that wasn't it. That was just the, the, the warm-ups to, uh, to the real labor. And it's the same thing for the Jewish people in their tribulation. Then it says, they will deliver you to tribulation, they will kill you, you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Because of my name. And that's tribulation. That hasn't happened yet. We've seen anti-Semitism for thousands and thousands of years, and it's always for different reasons than this. It's never because of the name of Jesus Christ, like it's going to be in the tribulation. And that's another facet of how powerful I think those 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be in, in the sense that the Jewish evangelists are going to be naming the name of Jesus Christ and it's going to drive global hatred against the Jewish nation. And so uh, there's going to be betrayal. That's verse 10. And many uh, false prophets will arise. <clears throat> verse 12. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now again, that's tribulational in its application, but I sure see some, some foreshadowing of that in our day and age. We, we see some signs of the times today where uh, lawlessness is increased and agape love is as cold as, uh, as an icebox, I tell you. And then it says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Don't ever, ever take that verse out of its tribulational context, all right? Don't ever take it out of the tribulation in scope. This is where if you endure to the end, Jesus Christ is coming back and he will conquer and he will establish the millennial kingdom. So if you survive, if you endure long enough, you will see that in uh, the promise here. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. And this is what we're dealing with. This is an eschatological passage for the Jewish people. So when you see, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus says that Daniel was yet future in his fulfillment, unlike what the liberals tell you today, that, oh, that was all, that was all fulfilled in the Maccabean era. That was all fulfilled with, with uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. And uh, don't you know how you know, all these things came about? And uh, all these smarty-pants liberals and all their, uh, all their uh, wrong theology need to just look here and see what Jesus said. Jesus was living after the Maccabean era. And, uh, and he wasn't claiming that it was fulfilled back then. He said it's still future and said it's a critical sign for you to observe so that you can flee and, uh, and the aspects there. All right. And there's some other verses on here that I crack up. You don't want to be pregnant. You don't want to be nursing in verse 19. I mean, 
Do you know how fast pregnant women tend to run? They, and, and babies slow you down? I mean, we get this. Anyway, it makes me laugh every time I read this. So, many false Christs. And then we have, uh, we have this. Now, the glorious return, in the glorious return, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. How powerful is that going to be? <laughs> you know, I can't imagine how scared, silly the whole planet's going to get when uh, all of a sudden the sky goes dark and all the stars are gone and everything is just pitch black in the, in, the, in the darkness of night with no starlight. And then one star appears. I believe it's going to be a star. The sign of the Son of Man like it was at His first advent, the Bethlehem star. But now here comes this star again and it's the only one in the sky so you can't miss it. And it starts growing closer and closer and closer. <laughs> oh, they're going to panic. And uh, and so there they are. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, one into the sky and the other. Now, what he starts to talk about after this, and now I'm down to verse 32, he starts to give parables then that relate to this anticipation. And there are, there are parables that relate to certain signs that you can see that let you know that it's close but there's no precision that tells you what day or what hour and exactly how long do I have to hold out. And so uh, in verse 32, he says, learn the parable of the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So the season is approaching, yet we don't know the exact day or the hour that, uh, that our Savior will return. And so uh, you know uh, when you see all these things, recognize He is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation being the tribulational generation. The tribulational generation that sees all those beginnings of birth pangs, that sees all those other things. They know that the, the branch is tender. They know that they're going through the tribulation. They know that the kingdom is, is drawing nigh. Okay? And if you've ever read commentaries on this, <laughs> oh my, they're, they are all over the map. And there are all kinds of speculative insanity out there about this generation being the first century and, and trying to fulfill everything with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Or even worse, bringing it into the 20th century and saying the modern state of Israel as founded, now that generation has to be the one that Jesus was, was speaking of. Anyway, a lot of crazy things are happening there. But pay attention when it says um, of that heaven and earth will pass away and my words will not pass away. And then verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father alone. And so this is what builds the expectation of imminency is that remember Jesus Christ had laid aside his privileges in kenosis. He was not using the omnipotence or the omniscience or any of his divine attributes that he has. And so he's limiting himself to what the Father shows him, to what he learns, to what he can study in the Bible, to what he is taught. He limits himself. He doesn't stop being God or he doesn't lose his omniscience, but he never uses it so as to learn these things that the Father has kept in his own prerogative. And so not even uh, of that day and hour, no one knows. So if somebody writes a book telling you when these things are going to be, save your money, okay? 
don't waste your money because they don't know unless it was written by God the Father. They don't know. All right. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now this is where, again, we have an imminency doctrine. But it's not the rapture doctrine. See, don't just jump to that conclusion that, well, rapture doctrine is an imminency application. This doctrine here is an imminency application. It's got to be the same thing. No, it doesn't have to be the same thing. It employs an imminency aspect, sure. But that doesn't mean it's the same thing. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Just carrying on, having a great time and not knowing that their judgment was, was right there. There will be two men in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. And two women grinding in the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. And they say, see right there, that's got to be rapture. No. It's, in fact, it's the opposite. It's anti-rapture. At the rapture, the ones taken are the believers that get to go to heaven. The ones left are the unbelievers that have to remain on earth and and face Antichrist and tribulation and everything else. This is the opposite of that. The ones taken are the ones that the, the tares that are separated from the wheat and they're gathered into bundles and they're thrown into the fire. See? So it's like an anti rapture, if you will, because it's unbelievers that are taken, not snatched, but taken. And uh, the ones left are the believers that are left to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So be sure of this. If the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. You, you probably noticed that. I mean, it goes without saying. When burglars are casing your place, they don't send you a note. Say, by the way, next Thursday, 3 a.m., I'm going to break into this window. They just don't tell you that ahead of time. Makes sense. And uh, that's uh, the aspect of imminency. So be prepared. If uh, the head of the house had known, he would have uh, been on the alert, would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So for this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. And that's the application. So they have an imminency application, just like Noah had an imminency application, just like uh, the rapture is an imminency application, just like even first advent was an imminency application. Uh, we're going to see when we get to the Luke 2 passage that you had some folks imminently waiting for the birth of Christ, and including a guy who couldn't die until he saw that the, the, the baby Jesus had been born into the world. They were living under an imminency application. God uses imminency in a lot of places throughout His, uh, throughout his plan and program. All right, uh, how much more do we want to do on this? Well, let's see. The problem is if, uh, if you lose your sense of imminency, then you become a slug. <laughs> and uh, verse 48, you know, if the evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time. You know, if you lose your imminency focus and you think, eh, rapture's not coming in my generation. It's not coming in our day and age. We got tons of time. And then you decide to become a slug in your Christian walk. Well, look out. Um, 
Crossing into chapter 25, it continues. We got 10 virgins. We got a parable of talents. We got other applications here related. In, in the virgins, you have five foolish virgins, five wise virgins, and the representation there as they're waiting for the, for, uh, the, uh, the wedding. Again, it's a concept of imminency. And if you're not ready, it's too late. When it, when it comes and you're not ready, well, there you go. And so, uh, the conclusion of that to the virgins and their oil parable here. Be on the alert in verse 13, Matthew 25, 13. For you do not know the day or the hour. That's the application there. All right, over to Luke then, Luke 2. And we back up 30 years from uh, the end of Jesus' ministry to the beginning of his ministry. More than 30 years, actually, 33 years, 37 years even up to depending on where you date the birth of Christ. But Luke 2, some people like 4 B.C. because of the death of Herod, or they like 6 B.C. because uh, Herod wanted two-year-olds and under to be murdered, um, different things. And they like to use the 4 B.C. kind of as a kickoff date because for, for a long, long time that was thought to be uh, the, the undoubted date for Herod's death. Uh, now we're starting to doubt what was previously undoubtable, and maybe Herod died in 1 A.D. instead of 4 B.C., so that kind of affects some of the, some of the calculations on that. But either way, um, whatever year this was, when Jesus was born, they brought him into the temple and um, had to present him there. Remember, he was born under the law, and they kept every facet of the law, including his circumcision and including his dedication. So, um, yeah. Where do I pick up here? Well, so verse 21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel. And when the days for their purification according to law were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord. And this was required. He was the firstborn son. He's the one who opened the womb, as, uh, as the Old Testament says. And every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what was said, uh, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That was actually the cheapest of the three options. This shows their economic status. This shows where Joseph and Mary were on the socioeconomic scale of things, that uh, that they were not give, bringing the, the most expensive or even the middle. They were giving the lowest of the uh, of the options, the birds that they could bring. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So here is a imminency application. And, and it, no one would think that this was the rapture. No one would conflate this with the rapture. But uh, they do constantly uh, conflate that second advent with the rapture simply because there was an imminency concept there. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So a prophetic utterance said, you know, announced this to him, and he accepted it by faith that he was, he was immortal until he saw the Christ, that he couldn't possibly die until he saw the Christ. And, uh, you know, you talk about a, a man of faith that they haven't had a prophet in Israel for 400 years. Uh, Malachi was the last one, right? And so they have 400 silent years, and here's Simeon. He's a righteous believer, he's learning, and then the Holy Spirit reveals himself in a prophetic utterance. Uh, I, find that, uh, I find that interesting. And so he came up in the Spirit into the temple, 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said. And we really don't know how old this guy is. You know? There's no, I mean, there's legends and all kinds of, you can't prove any of that. But, you know, how old is this guy? Has he been around for 100 years, 200 years, 400 years? Did, did he remember Malachi? Was he around the whole time in those, in those 400 silent years? See? No, I don't think so. But however old he was, he was old enough to know he wasn't dying. And uh, he wanted to die because he wasn't in a resurrected, glorified body. You know, how, how long do you want to stay in this body without dying? See? Anyway. And then there's Anna. So he, he uh, takes the child and blesses. And uh, I love his song here. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You know, think about it. The creator God of the universe is now cradled in human hands. I mean, how powerful is that to hold, uh, to hold the Christ child? And then uh, Anna is the other example here. Verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Okay? Again, don't let anybody lie to you about those lost tribes. Okay? More books getting sold and more sensational bad doctrine. Um, Asher wasn't lost. Anna knew who she was and where she was. She was advanced in years, had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Looking for. So that whole concept, imminency demands that we're looking for what God has promised. And we don't know when it's coming, but we're going to be looking when it gets here. That we're going to be found faithful when he arrives. And that's true for the church in our imminency application of rapture. That's, that was true for Israel in their first advent. It's going to be true again for Israel in their second advent of their Messiah. Uh, it's true in a lot of applications. How about the destruction of the heavens and the earth in Second Peter 3? Second Peter 3. I just think there are certain doctrines that when you fully appreciate them, they spark uh, an attitudinal adjustment. When you fully appreciate certain doctrines, it just, it just transforms our thinking in such a way that at the attitudinal level, that there is a, a reshaping of our outlook. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, <laughs> what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? All right? And this is with respect to uh, Second Advent and then following the Millennial Kingdom. It's with respect to the destruction of the heavens and the earth. So this is not an imminency application per se, because it's at least a thousand and seven years from now. But it is a doctrine that has such an impact that it ought to shape our thinking. It ought to affect our attitude. And that's the point on this. And so, um, yes, we live in the days of the mockers. From verse 3, we live in the days when people are going to be scornful about prophecy, scornful about eschatology, and uh, they call you, you know, all kinds of names if you are a tribulationist or if you are a dispensationalist and, uh, and things there. And yet it escapes their notice that, uh, that God is faithful. Uh, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. God is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient. 
The fact that the rapture hasn't happened yet, that doesn't mock the rapture doctrine. It celebrates the rapture doctrine. It's still just as imminent as ever was. And uh, just because he's patient enough to let more mockers get saved is uh, doesn't not, don't knock the doctrine. Rejoice that our God is so faithful. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. This is the, the best global warming passage you can find anywhere in the Bible. Okay, The whole universe, every molecule of matter in the, in the universe is consumed. The elements themselves. So the heavens will pass away, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, the earth and its works. That's the real issue. Is those that are serving the God of this age and these works that are hostile to, uh, to the plan of God. So since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's the point. And Scripture is making that point. Here's the doctrine. When you absorb it, when you, when you uh, appreciate the scope of it, our God is a consuming fire. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of justice. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And if we lose that fear, if we lose that fear of the Lord, that reverence, we're in trouble. And I think it's, it becomes common when we are, um, well, we're saved by grace and we're walking in grace and we're forgiven of so much and, and uh, we lose tr- and we're, we're delivered from the wrath to come. We don't, have to, we don't have to be afraid of this wrath. There's nothing to be scared of with the earth and its works being burned up because there's a new heavens and a new earth on the way and we're already ready for that. We're suited for that in our new nature. So we're not terrified of, of any of that. We're not scared of losing our salvation. We're not terrified of, of judgment. We've passed out of darkness into light, right? But having said all that, does, does that mindset make you think less of God or make you think that He's not the same God of vengeance He's always been or that He's, he's not a God of consuming fire like He's always been? He still is. He still is, and we have to maintain our fear of the Lord. Our God is a consuming fire. And so this is the application. Don't be so uh, grace-focused you, you lose your fear of the Lord. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when you lose fear of the Lord, you lose your, your diligence in, in Bible study. So looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We should be so excited about eschatological matters that we want to speed them up. Looking for and hastening. How do we speed them up? How do we, how do we you know, get God going on that? Say, come on, God, come on, God, you know. When your kids are so slow, how do you get them in the car faster, right? Or, you know, when... When your wife forgot the fourth thing in a row, now we're going back again. You know, how do we get God to go faster in His plan? Because a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. And Well, it says hastening. I believe the, the best thing we can do to hasten the rapture of the church is to give the gospel, get more people saved. Because as soon as the bride is complete, we're gone. So uh, we just know that the church is still functioning today because there's still unbelievers that have to get saved to enter into the church. So let's, let's fill up that church. Let's, let's, let's complete the bride of Christ, whatever the case may be. All right, as far as that goes. <clears throat> Sharon's not here yet, so don't anybody tell her anything that <laughs> I might have said. All right. 
So we have imminency. We have expectation of accountability. All right? Expectation of accountability. Now, it's not judgment. It's not condemnation. But it is accountability. And so on that imminent basis, knowing that, that today I can be standing before the Bema, today I can be standing before Jesus Christ at the, at the judgment seat if the trumpet sounds today, that, that's a goad. That is a very powerful goad for our, for our diligence. All right. So then it says, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. The present active imperative of stako is our imperative to stand firm. S-T-E-K-O. It's the long E and the long O. It's eta instead of epsilon and it's omega instead of omicron. The verb is stako. And it is used eight times in the New Testament. Uh, I think I put all eight of them on the slide there. Uh, Paul is very fond of this term. And it's, uh, it's what we're expected to do. We're expected to do against the adversary. We're expected to stand firm in Ephesians, which is not stako, but it's a related term, histemi. And uh, in, no matter what the angelic conflict is, uh, we're wrestling against the, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, so he gives us our armor that we can, uh, we can stand firm. Uh, we have Romans 14, 4, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. That's where I think we did the greatest uh, or most extensive of our Staco studies was in the conclusion of 1 Corinthians. But then we hit it again in Galatians 5 and uh, mentioned in, in uh, Philippians 1, 27. So we've already had it in this book before chapter 4. Of course, Philippians 4, 1 is our passage this morning. Uh, the Thessalonians had an exposure to this term in both First and Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians three eight and Second Thessalonians two fifteen. So stand firm. Present active imperative. What does that mean? Present tense. Continuous action in present time. It's not just uh, something you do once. It's not something you do. It's okay. I did that. You keep doing it. You do it over and over. You constantly do it. You don't ever stop doing it. It's like pray without ceasing, rejoice always, and everything give thanks. We have present imperatives in the New Testament to show us the continuous action nature of these things. It's expected for us all day, every day to be standing firm. Active voice, we accomplish the activity of the verb or the active agent of the verb itself. And imperative mood is the mood of command. All right, Romans 14. The neat thing about this, it's an imperative that's given as an expectation of normalcy that this is going to be normal for the church age. This is what he expects. And he makes provision so we can do this. He's not ordering you to do something you can't possibly do. And God never doesn't give you a command that you can't fulfill, in, in, uh, certainly in the church age. Okay? We can say, well, why did he give Mosaic law? Then no one could keep it. That's different. As church age believer priests, given imperatives, we can fulfill every imperative he gives us to do. And Romans 14.4 makes this clear. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Isn't that great? What a promise. So if you want to stand, make use of God's ability to do so. God is able to make you stand. And so this is our blessing as we stand before him. And, and this is a part of how we show grace one to another in our Christian walk. Because there might be differences along the way. We may have differences of opinion in how we apply certain doctrines. We might have a, a weakness in our faith, uh, as, as is described here. 
In fact, much of this came out in the newsletter. For, the, <clears throat> for those of you that were awake at 1.30 in the morning to get your newsletter, which I know we all were, right? I had to stay after 2 o'clock so I could put the clock back to 1 o'clock. And then uh, in any event, the newsletter addresses this in the reflections portion, addresses the idea that we're not judging one another, that we're supporting one another in all of our testing and all of our applications. So it, it says in Romans 14, 1, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. This is how we accept one another. This is true tolerance in the, in the body of Christ, in the, in the local church operations. So one person has faith, he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Different believers come to different faith convictions at different times of their Christian walk. And so the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. And there are so many of these issues. I mean, maybe not meat sacrificed to idols anymore, but alcohol certainly is. And there's a lot of believers that struggle with alcohol and they prefer to not touch a drop. And they prefer to never have any drop, never have any, any alcohol of any kind. And that's where their faith conviction has brought them. Other believers come to a different faith conviction because the sin is drunkenness. And so they feel they can drink in moderation, they can drink in the, in the will of God for the purposes God provided alcohol for enjoyment. And as long as they don't cross into drunkenness, then they feel that they're in their faith conviction that they're fine as unto the Lord. And so different believers come to those two different things or whatever else, playing cards, dancing, going to movies. There's a ton of stuff that legalism wants to make a sin for everybody simply because some believers have a weak conscience that, that uh, chooses not to engage in that activity. See, And so the point being is we love one another, we serve one another, and we're not judging one another for the convictions that they come to. If it's a real biblical conviction, praise God for it. Okay? Now you may not understand it, that's fine. But as long as you, you're talking to them and you're finding out what they're doing, what they're thinking is, why, they're, you know, why they have a thing on this, well then hey, man, praise God, say thank you. I'm glad that you're letting Scripture shape your thinking. You know? uh, and, and, and just let it go at that. You don't have to tell them, well that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> you know? You're the only Christian on the planet I've ever heard with that kind of a faith conviction. What, a, what an idiot. No, not at all. They, they read the verse, they think this is what it means, this is what they're going to live by, praise God. Okay? And maybe 20 years from now it'll be different, that's fine. But as of now, that's their conviction. So if you love them in the Lord, you support their conviction and, and don't uh, pass judgment on, on what they're doing. All right, which is uh, a staco application here. Over to 1 Corinthians, where we spent a ton of time, you might remember this, we spent a ton of time in this and in 1 Corinthians 16, that was a while ago. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. We have a, a pentad, a five-fold imperative here for uh, application. That's, I think it's just a marvelous exhortation there. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. That's our staco. Because if you're not on the alert, you can't stand firm. If you don't see it coming, if you don't have your eyes open, if you're not armored up and, and watchful. Act like men. Women too, act like men. <laughs> All right? Be strong. Be strengthened. Passive imperative. Be strengthened. God will pour His strength into you if you allow Him to strengthen you. Let all that you do be done in love. And so 
This was the, uh, the fivefold imperative we looked at here that closed out the Corinthian epistle. And uh, marvelous to see how it works here in coordination with uh, so many of these other folks that uh, came alongside. This is what was mentioned to us uh, on Sunday night when Wes was teaching on spiritual gifts, the household of Stephanus and uh, ministering to the saints. They've devoted themselves for ministry to the saints and uh, the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, all these things. Uh, we were just here Sunday night uh, related to that. All right, so stand firm. Galatians 5.1. Galatians 5.1. You want to walk in the flesh? You want to walk in the Spirit? <laughs> Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In the whole battle of Galatians, the issue is legalism. And if you want to go back to legalism, even though legalism didn't save you, you were saved by grace through faith. But there's a lot of folks that get saved by grace through faith, and then they decide to become legalists anyway. And as if somehow that's going to contribute to their sanctification, as if somehow that's going to make them better Christians or make them better rewarded, or somehow legalism is, is the way to go in the church age. It's absolutely not. If you're saved by grace through faith, then walk by grace through faith. And, uh, and that's the whole point of the book of Galatians. And so it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The biggest issue that perhaps the biggest issue that you'll have to deal with in standing firm is not satanic attacks or temptations for, you know, fornicating or some kind of a, you know, thou shall not steal temptation that hits you every now and then or whatever. It may be that the biggest temptation you get hit with is that legalism temptation, whereby your pride is starting to get you off the rails thinking that uh, you're better than the next guy. And next thing you know, those systems of pride have you locked into a legalistic mindset. So that's, that's just slavery, as we saw when we taught this book. If you want to be a legalist, that's a tough road. That's exhausting, because it, it never stops. You, yeah, I mean, once you step foot on that path, you've got to keep it up. You've got to keep it up. And maybe, yeah, maybe you were better today than tomorrow, but man, tomorrow's another day. So uh, there you have it. Stand firm against the legalists. Philippians 1.27 Paul talks about standing firm in the first chapter of this book. He says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The best thing going for if you want to stand firm as a believer is other believers that are standing firm as believers. The stability of a flock where you're growing together and corporately you can stand firm. And uh, this is what Paul was hoping that he would have reported about them if in fact he's not able to get released from his uh, jail and uh, come and visit with him again. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what's the reputation of, of this local church? When, uh, when other flocks hear about Austin Bible Church, what do they hear? Do they hear, wow, that's a congregation that stands firm? Or do they hear, hmm, there's a congregation that uh, they're, not, they're not united, they're not one-minded, they're not intent on one purpose, they're not standing firm. What's the reputation? See, yeah.
I think it's an issue. We should be concerned about our spiritual reputation as Paul was concerned for the Philippians, spiritual reputation. That people uh, talk about Austin Bible Church like, wow, there's a group of hungry believers. They get fed the Word of God. They come to prayer meeting. They're excited about the, the uh, Melchizedek priesthood. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Can you believe that? There's a doctrinal Bible church in Austin, Texas with all those, uh, all those crazy people. <laughs> and they're keeping Austin weird and we're keeping Austin in doctrinal teaching. How about that? Imagine. So there's a reputation. Uh, for one is our passage today, 1 Thessalonians 3.8. The biggest uh, concern Paul had, of course, was that he wasn't in Thessalonica very long. He was only there three weeks and got driven out of town. So uh, how much doctrine can you feed them in that short period of time? And are they going to stand firm in the meantime? Turns out they did. And so he was thankful for that. Um, he wasn't able to go back. He sent Timothy in there. You know, think about who he could send in. there. He couldn't go and he couldn't send Sylvanus. That left Timothy. And uh, 10 years old, 12 years old, however young he was, at least uh, he was saved, he had teaching, and he, he knew what Paul was teaching, so he went back to encourage him. And he taught all the Pauline doctrine he could while he was there. And, uh, and so that's what the context here is about. He said uh, <clears throat> in chapter 3, we could endure it no longer. We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And that was a tough challenge too, because he gave his Mars Hill sermon uh, while he was alone and faced all the conflict there. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And he comes back with a good report. And uh, so he returns in verse 6. Timothy has come back to us from you, has brought us good news of your faith and love. You know, this is, this is pre-Twitter, this is pre-Facebook and all the rest of that. They couldn't, if they wanted news from Thessalonica, somebody had to walk there, check it out, and walk back. Okay? And Timothy was the, the agent that did this. That you always think kindly of us, longing to see us. We saw this the other day because this is the longed-for terminology of beloved and longed-for brethren longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Again, do you, do you think this is important? I believe that a local church reputation is important. And if we have a strong faith reputation, that can be of a benefit to Lost Pines Bible Church or Corpus Christi Bible Church or West Houston Bible Church or wherever. We can, uh, we can be an example and can be encouraging. That way we don't get all, all myopic and all fixated on just, you know, the Elijah syndrome of I alone am left. Like we're the last Christians on the planet that are still living the Word of God. See? So we get encouraging reports from other places and we love it. And we hear, uh, we get an email that, that things are happening in Kiev, Ukraine, and we, we can celebrate uh, all these things. It's a positive statement. All right. And then he says, for now we really live if you stand firm, since you stand firm in the Lord. And he's not boasting about them, he's boasting in the Lord. God's been faithful in them. In, uh, in that. All right. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.15. <clears throat> the reason why we want to be a stable assembly and not unstable, we want to be solid, we want to be grounded, we want to be firm is because false doctrine will send people for a loop. And um, just one counterfeit letter evidently did some damage here. And um, 
He tells them, I don't want you to fall for this. We request of you, brethren, with regard, this is 2 Thessalonians 2.1, we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. What's that? Rapture doctrine. That's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episunagoge, our gathering together in the air. Now you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So you see this? If you're oriented to rapture doctrine in verse 1, you will never fall for the bad second advent doctrine as per verse 2. The day of the Lord. We're not going to face the day of the Lord because the rapture doctrine takes us first. So let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come. That is, the day of the Lord will not come unless the departure comes first. That's the return of our Savior and our gathering together to Him. The departure, not apostasy, departure. Then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So we have to have our eschatology straight or we get sidetracked. We get, we get all wrapped up about, ooh, who's Antichrist going to be? And oh, what's the mark of the beast all about? And what is 666? What's that code going to do? And how do I avoid not taking it if I don't know what it is? And, and, and how do I stay away from Antichrist if I don't know who he is? And don't worry about it. We're not going to be here to see any of it anyway. Stay stable in the Word of God. And um, verse 5, you know, I told you so. (laughs) A sanctified I told you so message. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And so get doctrine, be stable, and then relax. And so um, down to verse 13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Getting saved is only step one. We're going to grow after that. The better things, the things that accompany salvation we need to grow in. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter, from us. Stand fast in sound doctrine. Wednesday night when we come back to this, we'll talk about in the Lord. When it says stand firm, it doesn't say stand firm in your own strength. It says stand firm in the Lord. Just like when it said rejoice in the Lord. It didn't say rejoice in your testing. It said rejoice in the Lord. So what's the in the Lord about? When it says stand fast in the Lord, he's not saying do your best in your strength. It's the Lord that provides the strength. God's the one who's able to make us to stand. And so that's what we'll deal with Wednesday night. Lord willing and rapture pending. If the trumpet sounds, I'm not coming back Wednesday night. Okay? And neither are you. All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth and the blessing that we have. Thank you for the stability that comes. I thank you, Father, that the Word of God is a rock. And we have an anchor, sure and steadfast, one that enters within the veil. And so, Father... um, I thank you for the Philippian study. I thank you for the Hebrew study. In many ways, these are dovetailing together in, in extraordinary fashion. And I thank you for the equipping that uh, this teaching is providing for this congregation, each one of us individually, to be sure, but us corporately as a, as a body as well. So, Father, uh, continue to be at work there. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.